Hey, this evening, we find ourselves walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been taking it slow. Um, you're, you're probably like, yeah, Chris, we know you've been taking it slow. We've been in Mark since January, and we're only in the fourth chapter, but I, I, lo- I do love the text. I love these stories. I just think there's so much richness to them, and so I don't like to skip around too fast, but what happens is sometimes when we take you know, a, a few verses each week or a story each week, is sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the whole narrative, and so I just want to remind us that that the main point of Mark's gospel happens early on in the first chapter, um, Mark 1, 14, 15, kind of lays out the big picture or the big idea of the whole book. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit just to, to give it some color, but, but basically it says, when John the Baptist had been arrested, Jesus came into Galilee and he was proclaiming the good news of God. And he was saying, The time that we've all been waiting for since the promises to the patriarchs and to David and the prophets, it's been fulfilled. The reign of God has come near, and then he says repent, that means change the way you've been living as if the kingdom were far away, and begin living as though the kingdom were actually breaking into the world. Trust in this good news. Now, one of Mark's main goals for writing his Gospel of Mark is evangelistic. He wants the world to know that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is for them, that he's the king of the world, and and, and for people to come to know him and to come into relationship with Jesus. But there's another reason that Mark wrote his Gospel besides just evangelism to people who didn't yet follow Jesus. Mark's original audience were often Christians who were following Jesus, who wanted to know, like, tell me more about this man who, uh, who you knew or you heard about or you researched. We, you know, when you really love someone or like even if you're a fanatic about an actor or a singer, you go to IMDB or you read their bio and you kind of want to know, like, I wonder what they were like. I wonder what Taylor Swift was like as a kid or, you know, maybe an athlete that you're into or something like that. You kind of just want to, like, know more about them. And so the early church had heard stories. They'd come to faith in Jesus. Some of them had known him maybe uh, from a distance or, or later on in his ministry. But very few people besides the 12 probably knew, like, all of the stories of his ministry. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they write these accounts of the life of Jesus and in the New Testament church they would read them to each other. That's what church would be. And they didn't have to translate. They didn't need like scholarship in order to understand it because they're all speaking Greek and and, and Aramaic and that that first little bubble of the church. And so they're telling these stories of Jesus. Now Mark's original audience, is is this going? Mark's original audience was living probably during the fall of Jerusalem, or if not quite the fall of Jerusalem, they were living in a time period that was leading up to that fall. Rome was really putting the pressure on them. And I wonder if they were thinking, if the inbreaking kingdom of God has happened with Jesus' arrival, then why all of this suffering? Why is Rome still harassing us Why are many of our own Israelite brothers and sisters against us? Why is the world so broken? And you know, we've been asking those types of questions in every successive generation since Jesus. 
And so the massive, out of the massive catalog of things that Mark could have written about, of the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did, Mark chose to give us a select few teachings, and one of those important teachings are two parables that we're going to look at this evening. And they form a unit, a, a unit of teaching that helps shed light on this mysterious nature of God, God's reign, on why it might not look exactly like we think it should look, and yet how tremendously powerful the seeds of hope are that have been planted. So speaking of seeds, we're going to read another couple parables about seeds. And I'm in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. Here's how these parables go. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night, and he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops all by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts, it in, the, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And again, he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? Well, it's like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is grown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but was explaining everything privately to his disciples. Well, Lord, we are your disciples. We're trying to follow you and to hear you. So I pray that you would open up these parables to us this evening. Not just what they mean or what they meant, but what you're trying to say to us in this moment in time, in this current context, in our lives. These two parables that we're looking at this evening are called, ready for this, parallel similitudes. You don't have to remember that. They're similes, right? A simile is a figure of speech that used to compare something. And almost always you can tell a simile when you're comparing two things and you use words like 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 or as or just so or then. And so some common similes might be something like the grandfather's hair was white as snow, right? Make sense? Um, The sky on this last Friday was as blue as a bluebird, right? That's a simile. Let's try it out. Somebody shout out um, hard as a... I heard rock. There you go. High as a kite. Yeah, okay. Uh, Bright as the sun. Okay, so you get the point. These are similes. Now, let's consider the first simile in Jesus' teaching. He was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night, and he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and how this happens, he doesn't know kingdom is like a seed, like a man who sows seed upon the ground, right? Now, this is a simile, but the kingdom is not like a seed, and it's not like a man who casts the seed, and it's not like the soil that the seed is cast upon. 
The kingdom is like the whole parable. So the emphasis isn't on the sower, and it isn't on the seed. It's not what kind of bed the farmer sleeps in or the pH of the soil. Sorry, Wayne, I know you could get deep into the weeds with this, but that's not what this parable is about. The point is that the kingdom of God is mysterious and powerful and inevitable. Just like a seed that's planted and then mysteriously grows into something that doesn't even resemble its original form, but produces a plant that bears a harvest. That's a bit what the kingdom is like. And Jesus is saying that there's something mysterious and powerful about this small seed that's planted in the gospel. It may seem like nothing significant is happening at all. It may feel like the world is falling apart, that the seed of the gospel and the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus has done very little in the real world. But Jesus says that's to be expected. And what is also to be expected is that just like a seed is buried and seems to do nothing for days, all of you with your starts, I'm sure they're up now, but when you first plant those starts, like nothing seems to happen for a while. And despite outward experience, the inevitability of the reign of God will come bursting forth from the ground in its fullness one day. And there's hope that one day all things will be made new. And it's the inevitability that all who have died will rise at the return of Jesus, either to spend eternity in the new creation or will have chosen not to. That inevitability of the coming kingdom of God is good news. We happen to, you and I, you and I happen to live in a time and a place and a culture that is unique to most other times, places, and cultures in all of human history. We happen to live in a time when we assume we can live longer, healthier, more freely during our lifetime. And it's no surprise that the gospel finds often Western Europe, United States, and Canada very hard ground to penetrate. We're living in heaven, or we think so. But in most of the world, for most of human history, and in most of the world today, it's not like that. In most of the world today, life is much harder Injustice affects the vast majority. The gospel of Jesus in those places right now in Iran, in China, in South and Latin America, it's taking off like wildfire. Did you catch the simile? It's taking off. It's estimated there are now more Christians in China than the United States. Most people in the world are at the bottom end of the power differential. And for them, as for the Jews and the Greeks in the, uh, under the Roman Empire in the first century, the promise of new creation and God's reign bursting forth with inevitability, that's really good news. Because a lot of people have consigned themselves like, I may never see justice or freedom in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime. And for them, the seed of this inevitable kingdom of God coming is good news. 
This parable speaks to the inevitability of that coming kingdom. It's such an encouragement. It's encouraging because there's no emphasis on anything that you have to do to make the kingdom come. There's nothing that evil can do to stop the coming of the kingdom. And and then the first parable continues. The soil produces a crop all by itself. First the blade, and then the head, and then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come, right? It gets cut, it gets harvested. And at the end of this first parable, there is a reference to the sickle used in harvesting grain, right? The image of the sickle almost certainly comes from the prophet Joel. In the third uh, third chapter of the prophet of Joel, it speaks of the coming day of the Lord when the oppressed and distressed Israel would have their land and their fortunes restored to them. And God would come and rescue them and would judge their enemies. And the metaphor used for that judgment of the enemies is a sickle. Listen to a little bit of Joel here. Let the nations be called to arms. Let them march to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I, the Lord, will sit to pronounce judgment on them all. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. And here's the meat of Jesus' message. For those who are opening up their hearts to Jesus, who are trusting in him as the Messiah and the Savior, this parable is extremely good news. They'll be rescued against all odds. The rescue is inevitable. But the irony is that many who, resist, who were resisting Jesus when he's teaching these parables were the religious leaders who were from Israel who thought that they would be safe from the wrath to come. But what we see here is a warning, like the sickle, separation from God's promises and his new kingdom, is poised to cut off those who are openly rejecting Jesus. So, this first seed parable encourages us to have hope in the unstoppable, inevitable arrival of God's kingdom. But my goodness, how long is this going to take? How long, Lord? It sure seems like not a lot has been going on for the last 2,000 years since Jesus declared the kingdom of God is at hand. Which brings us to the next parable. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all of the garden plants. And it forms large branches and such that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Now, the first parable was about a warning, about the uh, uh, undeniable inevitability of the kingdom. It's going to flourish. It's going to come. It's going to shoot up. It's going to cause a harvest. But Jesus knows how difficult it is to trust in that inevitable future when you can't see it now. So he gives us this parable of the mustard seed to keep us from despairing about small beginnings. See, eventually this little seed, this little gospel, this little church, this seemingly insignificant Jewish man who was crucified, eventually the small and despised root of David will be the life tree that supports all of life. 
Now, mustard seeds are very small. The variety that Jesus is probably talking about would take 750 seeds to weigh one gram. But there were smaller seeds in the world, even in Palestine in that day. For example, the orchid makes a smaller seed. So why would Jesus say that the mustard seed is the smallest? Did he need to go back to biology class? Well, I think Jesus quotes this saying about a mustard seed being the smallest because by the first century AD, it was a proverbial cliche. When people wanted to describe something as being extremely small, they would say, it's as small as a mustard seed. It was a simile that they would use. It was a saying. And so Jesus, ever the master teacher, gave an example of something that was literally common sense, a common saying, a popular saying. In this parable, the kingdom of heaven is not like a mustard seed. It's like a mustard seed, which being smaller than all the seeds in the garden, grows largest of the garden plants. The emphasis is not on the seed or on the plants. It's on the surprising difference between the small beginning and the glorious end. The kingdom of heaven is like something that seems insignificant, but then grows into something larger than we would, we would really expect. Jesus came proclaiming the reign of God. He was performing the works of God in real time, in real history, and yet the world is still broken, and sometimes it appears as though the work of God is at best in the background or in the margins of society. And that's where the parable of the mustard seed really hits home. The kingdom, Jesus says, will start small. It will seem backwoods, insignificant, not worthy of news headlines, but it will exceed your imaginations. And I'm thankful that the kingdom will exceed expectations because I think one of our big issues, our collective, our big issues, is that our imagination for what the kingdom will look like, should look like, could look like, I think our imaginations are a little bit warped in two main ways. First, our expectations are too focused on our present situation. We are living in a world that tells us that it is our right, our privilege to have pretty much what we want when we want it. Instant gratification culture. We're in the midst of it right now. I'm part of it. Oh, I'm bad at it. If we don't see results the way we want in the timing we desire, we conclude X, Y, or Z a failure. We conclude our project is a failure, our career is a failure, our friendships are a failure, our marriages are a failure. If we don't get like the vision we want, when we want it, in our timeline, throw our hands up and say it's not worth the effort. But some projects, like they just take more time than your Burger King timeline, your way right away, right? Like some ancient cathedrals took generations to build such that the people who started them or even worked in the middle of them never saw the completed thing. And some cathedrals are so massive and like by the time you get to the completion, you're already doing maintenance on the stuff you started centuries earlier. So it's this, in fact, in my few travels to Europe, every time I go to a cool cathedral, like there's always scaffolding on it. I've never gotten a picture of one that's just like without anyone working on it because they're always falling down. and It's this perpetual project. Sometimes our churches in the United States, I'll stick there because that's where we live, sometimes our churches have reflected this insecurity of needing to feel significant 
successful by the world's standards. Well, how do we define that? Is it large crowds of people confessing Jesus, whether or not they really follow him or not? Is it, is it getting in the news or, or, or getting noticed on a regular basis by who? By people out there? Do we expect our lives as followers of Jesus to be overwhelmingly mostly happy, put together, confident, financially secure, assured in our career path and a job, a spouse that meets all of our needs. Oh, and of course, children. That's just a given, right? Do we imagine that if the kingdom of God is really breaking in, then the world should look like my brand of politics? And our current idea of what society should look like. And, and I think here's the big hang-up. Do we assume that if the kingdom of God began breaking in with Jesus, that the world should be getting progressively better? We just had this conversation in our small group the other night. Do we think the world is getting progressively better? Do we think it should be getting progressively better? The parable of the mustard seed and leaven challenges our assumptions of misplaced hope in the kingdom of God, that the, or that the kingdom of God breaking in means that the world should be getting progressively better. I think it challenges that assumption. I'm not sure we read that in anywhere in scripture with any kind of meat to it, that the world should be, be getting progressively better. These parables tell us that until Jesus returns, and brings his kingdom in full, the kingdom on earth will appear small and insignificant, not flashy. We should probably beware of a Christian movement that is too flashy. Significant, yes, that's cool, but flash, beware. The kingdom, according to this, is not flashy, not defined by the world's definitions of success. We're not called, I want you to hear this, because sometimes it's said, I think, wrongly. It's my opinion, but I'm your pastor, so. We are not called to build the kingdom of God. We are not called to build the kingdom of God. We are called to reflect the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming inevitably. While we sleep, the shoots come up. We, how we do not know but we reflect the kingdom of God back into the world. We're the crazy ones who are called to live as though the kingdom were here before it's actually here. And that means like being generous in a world that's like, that's stupid, why would you do that? Well, I'm living in advance of the kingdom of God. We're called to be the ones who forgive when the world says, you're gullible, that's stupid, that will get you hurt. Yes, maybe, probably, but I'm trusting in the inevitability of this new economy that's coming, and you'll see, it's gonna be great, and I want you to have a taste of it now. We're called to reflect the kingdom. We can't build it, that's God's job. So breathe, you should be relieved. We should be relieved, we don't have to build the kingdom of God. And I think that each generation, each generation, this is why I don't think the world is getting progressively better, nor should we expect it to, is that each generation 
encounters mustard seed beginnings. Each generation has an opportunity to be faithful and to engage and to see that maybe the most important work um, is reflecting Jesus to just the regular people in your life that you are with each day and each week. It's not necessarily glamorous, but your investment in your family and friends and coworkers and church body and community, all in the name of Jesus, that is kingdom stuff. Which leads me to the second way I think we have unrealistic expectations or imaginings of the kingdom of heaven. I think we also think way too small. Like, we think that the mustard seed and the kingdom is small, yes, but also insignificant. That it can't really change much until Jesus brings it in full, but I think, I think it's all our perspective. If Jesus uses you, works in and through you to change one life, to introduce one person to Jesus, to help set one person free from poverty or ignorance or disease or slavery, then he has worked in and through you to do the work of the Savior. And that is small on the global scale, but that is massive and significant on the kingdom scale. Loving one person means loving one image bearer of the living God. So I think we're fooled into thinking that to get things done in this world, we need lots of money or and lots of influence, but the kingdom doesn't rely on those methods. Thanks be to God. I don't have a lot of those things, but I've got Jesus. And the world has been forever changed by small acts of faithfulness to God that inspired people to fight slavery and invent hospitals and engage in scientific discovery and create formal education and invent musical notation and feed the hungry and house the homeless and show hospitality to the refugee and to lead the way in arts and design. This is significant stuff started by people who were following Jesus in their individual lives, and it like a snowball began to build. We're all like seeds of hope hidden in the soil of culture and history, in our families, in our social structures, and we might seem insignificant. We might even get lost in our work. We may not live to see the final result, but the results are more often more significant than we can hope or imagine. So this parable says, wake up. Things aren't what they seem. Don't despise the small work that God calls you to as if it was insignificant in the world. Don't you see? Obedience to Jesus, doing his kingdom work, changes the world. The mustard seed becomes a great tree such that the birds of the air come to nest in its branches. As I said earlier, that makes no biological sense. Jesus Was he wrong? Um, Maybe he doesn't know his mustard plants, or maybe he was trying to get a point across. You see, the prophet Ezekiel wrote of a time when God would raise up Israel and a mighty tree would spring up. And the birds of every kind representing the nations, that means the non-Jewish people, the people that were outside the family of God, they would come and perch, metaphor, in its branches. The people in Jesus' day thought that power and glory would attract the nations, 
But Jesus was redefining glory and redefining power and redefining might. And instead of a mighty cedar tree that Ezekiel was talking about, it would be more like a mustard bush. And instead of seeking to conquer through military might, Jesus the king would go to the cross and rescue us and the nations. What an offensive gospel. How embarrassing in a world of complex philosophies, of neat and clean, efficient technological saviors, and a world of political messiahs, Jesus and the cross, that's madness. And yet, that's the point of this parable. The way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. It's to put our faith in the one who hung on that cross. It's to pick up our crosses, to engage in the unglamorous, in the work of small beginnings, only to find that we've discovered true life and eternal life with that. So be encouraged. This parable is good news for us when we trust in Jesus the King. What seems like small beginnings or insignificance in the mundane activities of our lives will lead us to more life than we ever thought possible when we invite Jesus into the picture. Two takeaways for you this week. One would be to reflect on the small acts of faithfulness that you're already involved in. I bet if you thought about your life in the last six months, you could conceive of of some things that would encourage you, of ways that your small acts of service and faithfulness were already in line with God's kingdom. And trust me, (laughs) we need encouragement. It's weary living out there, right? So so reflect on that. Um, Last week in School of Prayer, um, we prayed over our calendars. We took our to-do list that day, and then we took our week, and we just prayed over the things that were coming. What would it be like for you to take a few minutes in the morning or the evening, I don't care, uh, and just to pray over the day's tasks for the next 24 hours? The appointments or the classes or the work or the relational touch points that you're gonna have, the things that you're excited about, the things that cause you anxiety. If you've got a doctor appointment or you're, you're meeting someone face-to-face that, I don't know, you don't know how it's gonna go or whatnot, and, and what, what would it look like to, to just hold those up to the Lord and invite him into those, invite Jesus to empower you to, to meet those appointments and those tasks with joy, with goodness, with beauty, with assuming the best in other people rather than boxes to check on your to-do list. Lord, thank you for encouraging us through this word. Thank you for calling out what we see in the small beginnings of the kingdom Thank you for addressing those who feel insignificant, who wonder how our lives could possibly matter in the big scheme of things. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage each of us to see uh, our lives with new vision, to conceive of even our mundane tasks, our shopping list and laundry doing and mundane work tasks, Lord, uh, to see those as opportunities to be a blessing to those in our lives, 
to do something with integrity and beauty and joy and a good attitude. And that is asking a lot, Lord. So we pray for the power of your spirit to encourage us and to give us the eyes that you see the world with. Help us to see our world through those eyes. How every small thing can matter and count for good and be beautiful. Amen.